Scripture. Um, and so I'm going to go over it again, um, much as I did back when we were in Ephesians 1, verse 5, which was several months ago. I don't remember exactly when it was. I started this Ephesians series back in the summer. So, um, But we're going to jump into it. First, we're going to review starting in verse 15. Uh, remember, we took a break from Ephesians last week and read through Titus chapter 3. Uh, so this will be two weeks ago we were in Ephesians 1.15. Um, and Paul says, for this reason, and the reason he is referring to here when he says for this reason is uh, what he starts talking about back in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And for this reason, and because I have heard of your faith in Jesus. So when we were in verse 15, one of the things I wanted us to observe was that Paul identifies the Ephesian church by their collective faith. Um, he does not identify them by any individual. Um, he does not identify them by Timothy, their elder, or by any other elder in the churches there. He, he identifies them by the faith that they have in Jesus, because Paul had heard about it. It's not just that he knew the Ephesians, knew some of the people there, and knew that some of them were faithful saints, but Paul had heard about the Ephesian church and their collective faith. Um, this faith is something that sets us apart as God's people. This collective faith is something that identifies us as an assembly to the community that we live in. Now, we also talked about the teaching to the local church, and we're going to get into that more today as we get towards the end. Because in verse 17, uh, Paul talks about the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of knowledge. And so we're going to talk a bit about the teaching in the local church. Um, we talked about this some last week in Titus. These letters in the New Testament are written to the church. They're meant to be understood and applied in the context of the church. And so, if you're not a part of the church, there's some of this context that is missing. There's some of these instructions that do not and cannot apply to you. Um, I talked about how Sort of watching preaching online is not an adequate substitute. Um, there's a place for it. It can be an encouragement. You can learn from preaching from all over the place. Um, but there is something different about the teaching of the local church. There's something different about hearing the word taught in the assembly. And that difference is that God has established that particular thing for the maturing of the faith of his people. God has established the church for your good, for your benefit. 
there's more to being part of an assembly than hearing the preaching, right? We've had people come here because that's what they wanted. They heard the preaching. They miss that there's more to this than good, faithful preaching. Because you can get that online, can't you? You can stay away from Claxton and listen to me and James on the computer. Paul identifies this when he says that, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and, and this is the other thing that establishes the foundation of the assembly of the saints, your love toward all the saints. And the way I framed this idea for us when we went through verse 15 uh, is by looking at how we might fail to love one another as we relate to one another in the assembly. Um, in particular, I talked about causing our brothers and sisters to fear. If we cause our brothers and sisters to fear or to doubt, then we have failed to love them. There were two things that I focused on. We talked about legalism, right? We talked about putting expectations and burdens upon our brothers and sisters that Scripture does not. We talked about putting fear on the hearts of our brothers and sisters based on some sort of performance or standard of good working and behavior. This destroys what Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 about this childlike faith, right? But we also talked about suspicion and doctrine. We talked about how when we get on to these I think James likes to call it a hobby horse doctrine, right? These things, pet doctrines, that we're so very interested in, we feel so very passionately about, but we take it too far. And we begin to doubt the profession of our brothers and sisters based on this doctrine that we have decided to overemphasize. When we do that, we cause our brothers and sisters to fear. And so moving on from this, because Paul has heard of the faith of the Ephesians and their love towards their brothers and sisters, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then Paul prays this about them. He gives them this encouragement and tells them that he has been praying for this thing. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him. And so I want to make some observations here about what Christ, how Christ relates to his Father and what Paul says about it. Um, he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I adjusted the title on the video here. The title of this sermon is officially The God of Our God. Paul calls God the Father the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want us to see there is that in the incarnation, God the Son becomes a human in such a manner that God the Father is not only his Father in the way he relates to him as a son, but God the Father is the God of God the Son in the incarnation. In John chapter 
20, Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but to go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And so Jesus relates to God the Father both as a father and as his God. And the reason we're going over the adoption described in Ephesians 1.5 again is because the way we relate to God the Father as a father and as our God is through our adoption by him, through our marriage to Christ. So let's turn to John chapter 8. And we are going to reestablish the doctrine of adoption that we worked through back in Ephesians 1, 5. First, I'm going to start by reading uh, John 8, 37 through 47, a fairly large section here. I know that, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees now. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. He acknowledges their main contention, right? They claimed that you know, we are the sons of Abraham by blood. Jesus admits this. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham, the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So Jesus first acknowledges their main contention, right? These Pharisees are claiming that, you know, we are the people of God because we are Jews. And it's not confusing to us because we know the story, right? But the Pharisees apparently were confused because they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. He makes a distinction between his own father and their father, and they don't understand it. So in verse 39, they claim Abraham is our father, and Jesus speaks about the works of Abraham. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Paul tells us the works of Abraham. Paul tells us how Abraham relates to the father. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here in John 8, these Pharisees, they claim to be sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, you don't do the works of Abraham. And Paul tells us what those works of Abraham are. They are to believe on the Son. And Jesus goes on here and explains that he is the Son. Believing on him, these are the works of Abraham. But the Pharisees claimed both to be children of Abraham and to be the ones who did the works of the law. They claimed to follow the law perfectly. But Paul rejects this when he tells us that it is not through the observation of the law that salvation is had. Abraham's observation of the law was not perfect. Right? The Pharisees claimed something beyond even what Abraham did. They actually understood their Old Testaments. They would understand this. Right? Abraham failed to observe the entire law. As we see in James that to transgress the law once at any point is to transgress the entire law. Right? The law demands justice, and that justice is death. It's impossible, even if you followed the law perfectly, it's impossible to go beyond the demands of the duties of the law. Because the law itself is just a duty, as Paul tells us there in Romans 4. The one who works, what he gets is his wage. Following the law perfectly just means you do not suffer the wrath. But God demands true righteousness, right? God demands absolute perfection, something that even following the law cannot achieve for us. Instead, Abraham's work was a work of faith. Abraham's righteousness was the righteousness of Christ. And so we see that God's adoption here is the effectual cause of salvation. Right? God's adoption of us, God's election of us, sets into motion God's plan, God's decree for our lives, right? Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, You would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Something to to understand here in verse 41. You're doing the works your father did. And they said, we're not born of sexual immorality. They still think he's talking about their earthly dad. They're thinking that Jesus is saying, no, your mother uh, gave birth to you from a different father. From a Gentile, not of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you still don't understand. 
In verse 42, Jesus establishes for us that this adoption, this being a son of God by adoption, according to the promise, this causes something in us. If God were your father, you would love me. So it's easy to make a mistake from this statement and understand it to mean that we have some duty to prove that we are the children of God. It's not what Jesus is saying. There's no duty to prove that you are not doing the works of the devil and that you are instead doing the works of God. Rather, Jesus is making a claim about the nature of God's adoption and what it does for his children. Because we, the elect, are adopted by God, God is faithful to work in us that love that we have for him. This is a promise. This is a promise given to the elect, to the people of God, that if you are adopted by me, you will love me. This is a promise that God is faithful to fulfill in us. John, the one who recorded this conversation for us, echoes this conversation when he writes his letter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So we do not have to prove that we are children of God. There's no further duty for us that puts us at risk of damnation. If we are in Christ, we will love because God is faithful to fulfill that in us. Instead, God proves that we are the objects of his grace. God proves that we are the objects of his affection by stirring up for us that love for him, that love that is part and parcel to the faith that we have in Christ. So Jesus establishes here that these Pharisees, they do the work of the devil because they are not children of God, but instead they are the children of Satan. They are not adopted by the Father, they are adopted by Satan. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? Because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. It's not that they heard the words of Christ and just of their own free will, chose not to like them. They could not understand Jesus' words because God did not ordain for them to be able to hear them at all. God did not decree before the foundation of the world that they would hear the words of Christ and their their eyes would be opened. 
just as Paul teaches us here in Ephesians 1, that before the foundation of the world, we are chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless before him, just as the elect are predestined for adoption as sons, these Pharisees were predestined by God to be objects of wrath so that God's justice might be shown in them. But that's not fair, right? First time I preached this sermon, I began with a joke about a comedian who was watching late night TV and this commercial comes on and says, forget everything you know about slipcovers. So he does, and then they try to sell him slipcovers and he doesn't know what they were. When we think about God's justice, it's almost as though we need to forget everything we understand about earthly justice. We need to forget about our preconceptions, our preconceived notions of what fairness and justice look like in the minds of our flesh and allow scripture to teach us what God's justice looks like, what God's justice really is. Let go of your human understanding of justice because it is warped by your flesh. It is not fair that the wicked are predestined for destruction. Right? Our human understanding of justice is that the wicked should be given a chance to apologize. A chance to prove themselves. But why should justice be based on that if that's not what salvation is based on? Right? Our salvation is based on the grace of God alone. It's based on God's righteous decree to save us. And in the same way, God's justice and judgment are based on God's righteous decree to judge. Just as salvation is based on God demonstrating his glory by pouring out his mercy upon a people who didn't deserve it, God's justice is based on demonstrating his glory by pouring out his wrath and his judgment upon people who did deserve it. We must allow scripture to shape our understanding of this divine justice. Right, and this is exactly what Paul explains for us in Romans chapter 9. Right, that's not fair. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist the decree of God? Paul answers the objection. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all scripture breathed out by God, the word of God, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? I've even seen well-meaning teachers try to get around how uncomfortable this can make us by saying that God prepares the honorable vessels for glory. But the dishonorable vessels, they prepare themselves. God 
leaves them to it, and they prepare themselves. What if God, desiring to make his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God has prepared them for destruction so that the glory of his justice might be seen and to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, his people, the church, the elect. We also understand that the word of God never returns void. And this is something that people often don't understand about the gospel and about gospel preaching. I've seen preachers feel bad when their sermon isn't effective, especially in the context of outreach and evangelism. I have friends who do evangelism on the street, and when you have a misaligned view of what gospel proclamation is for, it can be easy to be discouraged when people don't listen, right? Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth the sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the gospel of Christ, this word, has a purpose in all people. We might surmise that it is useless to preach the gospel to those who are not God's people, those who will never be God's people. And there are people who take this idea so far as to think they can identify who those elect are and those reprobate are. I call it the elector detector. There are people who can tell you they can detect, they can sense with their powers of discernment given to them by the Spirit, those who are reprobate. And that they know that they can withhold the gospel from those people. Because it's not for them. No. The gospel is to be preached indiscriminately to all people. Because the gospel has a purpose in the reprobate as well as the elect. Right? We can hear and judge a profession, right? You can tell me what your hope is in, and I can tell you if that is consistent with what the word has taught. But to claim that you know with certainty that a person is forever reprobate, decreed to be an object of God's wrath, is to claim to know the hidden counsel of the Father. It is claim to, to claim to be the Father himself. So we preach the gospel to all people without distinction. Because it has a purpose in both the elect to call them to faith and in the reprobate to harden their hearts against the voice of the Father. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then Jesus tells them, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. The reason the Pharisees did not believe Christ is because the things he was saying were the truth. They could not believe the truth. God works the gospel in their hearts to further harden their hearts against him. At every turn, we read through these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We read through these gospels. We see Jesus declaring who he is to these Pharisees. And at every turn, their hearts get harder and harder against him to the point that they start trying to kill him. Several times, they try to kill him until they are ultimately successful, again, by the decree of God. They heard the truth of the gospel, and they did not believe because they were adopted by Satan. And so, in contrast, who are the children of God? those who are adopted by the Father. Those to whom it is granted to believe in the work of Christ. Right, you hear, hear this all the time in cultural Christianity and in other pseudo-spiritual lines of thought. We are all God's children, right? No. The children of God are those who are adopted by the Father. And who are those who are adopted by the Father? Those who are found in Christ. Those who are part of the bride. Those who are married to Christ. So we, the elect, the people of God, we have legal claim to sonship under the Father. By virtue of our marriage to Christ, we claim to be sons and daughters of the Father. And so in that way, because that is how we relate to Christ, that is the way in which God is our Father. That is the way in which God is our God. By virtue of being one with Christ. Now, in verse 17... Paul refers to the Father as the Father of glory. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now this phrase, if you break it apart, Father and glory, these say different things about God than they do when you take them together. Right? God the Father is our Father by virtue of our adoption and our marriage to Christ. And God is most glorious by virtue of himself, Right? But when Paul says the Father of glory, he's speaking of something very specific. Something more specific than if he had just said, God is our Father and God is glorious. God is the Father of glory. Here Paul relates God's fatherhood 
of us to the method by which he is being glorified. He's not just the Father. He's not just glory. He is the Father of glory. God the Father is glorified in the glorification of his Son in the redemption of his people. Right? That was the plan from the very beginning, right? That was the purpose of creation, that ultimately God would be glorified in the redemption of his people, that God the Father would glorify the Son in his marriage to the bride, that God the Son would be glorified in making clean his bride. You might hear that you know, Jesus and redemption and his death on the cross and his resurrection was, you know, that was the plan B. Plan A, you know, Adam and Eve were supposed to just live forever in the garden and have children and be fruitful and multiply and live at peace with creation and with God. And then they messed it up. No. The glorification of Christ and the redemption of his people was the purpose from the beginning. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in him to be holy and blameless. This is what it means that God is the Father of glory. That by the decree of the Father, the Son would redeem his people. That the Son would be glorified in his death and in his resurrection. And ultimately in his marriage to the church. That wedding feast that we read about in Revelation. So Paul prays that the people of Ephesus would be blessed by this Father of glory, and that they would be given a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now this is a text that I have seen abused. Okay? I'll put it this way, there are no more prophets. The gift of prophecy is not receiving new revelation from God. But at the same time, the gift of prophecy is not dead. The gift of prophecy is still alive in the church. And the gift of prophecy is the same thing that the gift of prophecy has always been. Right? It's declaring forth the word of God. Hebrews 1, also probably Paul, writes, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God no longer speaks through prophets. He no longer delivers his words through prophets, but instead he delivers his words through the word, the Christ. And the gift of prophecy is the declaration of that word. Now, I'm not going to start calling myself a prophet. I'm not going to go on my Facebook page and put prophet Trey Mason because there are people who do that. 
But they are people who believe that they have received a word from the Lord. A new word that I really wish they would let me write down and staple in the back of my Bible. Because if you have received new revelation from the Father, I should be able to preach a sermon on it, right? God no longer speaks through prophets. He speaks through his son, and he has given us the word. All right, Hebrews 1 says the same thing as John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ has chosen to speak through his words to the apostles. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so as Paul encourages us here in verse 17, we ought grow in wisdom. We ought grow in our knowledge of him. Right? This is the very same encouragement given in Hebrews chapter 5, although it was a bit of a rebuke for the Hebrews. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so it is this, this spirit of wisdom that reveals to us the revelation of him. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, our knowledge grows. Not by osmosis, right? You can't just not do anything and expect your knowledge of Christ to grow. Right? What does Paul say? Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. We read, we learn, we grow. Both privately as we read the word and corporately as we hear the word taught in the assembly. So I figured I would talk about theology books for a moment because theology books are a thing. Theology books are out there. Um, and I know many people and have been one such myself who gleaned knowledge of God primarily through theology books rather than the Word. Right? It's okay to read books about theology, books about God written by people, written by men. As long as we understand correctly how that knowledge relates to the knowledge given by the Spirit of Wisdom, the knowledge of Him found in the Scripture. Right? If you are reading John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon or anyone else, read it with your Bible open, not your Bible closed. And sometimes you get into philosophy and 
the Bible doesn't have anything to say about it. And that's one of those fun things that we can discuss and disagree upon as people and still love one another. But when you read about God from something that is not your Bible, have your Bible there with you. If the thing you're reading is worth anything, they'll at least try to tell you where they got it from, if they got it from Scripture at all, right? So don't go and burn your books. There's value in that, as long as you understand the way it relates to Scripture. You understand that Scripture is the authority. But your growth in knowledge should come primarily from, one, reading the Scripture, and two, hearing the teaching of the Scripture in the assembly. Right? This growing of knowledge, this pouring out of grace for knowledge by the Spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, this is something that happens corporately. This is something that we do together, right? And this is something that is promised to us, right? This assembly is established for us to grow in that knowledge. And so Paul gives that encouragement. Do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And he goes on, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he is called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. So we must grow together, church. You can read and you can listen. But your growth will come when we do it together. Let's pray. God, continue to teach us 